Well, good morning and uh, welcome to uh, Christ Community, our Leewood campus. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson and uh, we're just really glad you're here on this uh, nice summer day. I hope you're on a good mood. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Well, we all have a philosophy of life. Those words might sort of push us into the highest levels of abstraction, the sort of intellectualism, but it's really simply that we all have a way of seeing the world. All of us have one, whether we can define it or describe it. Have you thought about what it'd be like to have a philosophy of life or a way of seeing the world where God is not in the picture? What kind of world would we see? What kind of life would we live? What would we feel? What would our experience be if God was not in the picture? Well, one of the individuals who's had an extraordinary career, a filmmaker of over 40 films, that's pretty stunning, isn't it? Has given us a vision, subtle sometimes, sometimes not so subtle in movies like Crimes and Misdemeanors or Midnight in Paris, of what life is like when God is not in the equation. His name, some of you are fans, I think you're already with me, is Woody Allen. Woody Allen, through his art craft, gives us these pictures of the reality of life being meaningless. And uh, in an interview he gave a while ago, Woody Allen opens up his soul to us and the window of how he sees the world. Listen carefully to his words and how he says them. Watch this. Fear <laughs> is what drives me. That, that um, if I stop working, you know, work is a wonderful distraction and you get up in the morning and you think can I get this actor and what will I do with this costume and this location the cameraman I have to light it this way and the script doesn't work and many trivial problems that you solve and if you don't solve them nothing terrible happens to you just you have a bad movie but nothing terrible happens but if you don't have those problems you sit home with nothing to do and you start to think about real problems. You start to think about, gee, I'm getting older, I could get Alzheimer's, I could get cancer, I could, my heart, how much longer can my heart go? What, what am I doing here? You know, life is short, it's terrible, it's meaningless, and you start to get, and then fortunately, when you work, that all gets put away. And So I work all the time out of desperation, out of fear to, you know, I finish a project, and I don't want time off. I want to go right into the next one so I don't have time to sit in a chair and, and think about what a terrible situation all human beings are in. Well, just in case you're wondering, uh, I don't exactly share Woody Allen's worldview. But I do appreciate him. I appreciate his transparency, don't you? and also the logical consistency of which his worldview takes him. That life is really meaningless. 
In another context, he's more precise and more specific. And he writes these words. He says, the universe is indifferent. So we create a fake world for ourselves. We exist within that fake world. A world that, in fact, means nothing at all when you step back. It's meaningless. But it's important that we create some sense of meaning because no perceptible meaning exists for anyone. So it's the deepest questions of our heart and mind is these questions of life. Are they answered satisfactorily to say to each one of us, well, we just pretend we live in a make-believe world. We just pretend we matter in some way. Is that where life takes us? Is that how we should view life? Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky said this. He's noted for this axiom. And what he says is logically sound. He says, if there is no God, everything is permissible. But what Dostoevsky does not say is the logical flip side that brings chills to our bones. And that is, if there is no God, then nothing really matters. Life then is meaningless. The search for meaning is a part of all of us. Throughout human history, the frayed fabric of fallen humanity has wrestled with the question, do I matter? Does life matter? What is the meaning of life? Over 2,500 years ago, it's a while ago, a Hebrew writer wrestles with this question too. And we have for us one of the most brilliant and insightful pieces of human literature ever written, the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. I'd like us to at least take a glimpse of this masterpiece this morning, and I'd like you to turn there with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. What does the Hebrew writer conclude? Is life meaningful? What's his answer? Now, you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 1, as you've opened there, if you're there with me, he opens with these words that you heard, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, in the English language, when we hear preacher, I mean, you know, you're here today, which I appreciate you coming. The preacher has just lots of connotations, Right? Someone that's judgmental, someone that's preachy. Maybe you have an image of a, a TV evangelist who's you know, calling for money. I don't know what. The word preacher is just kind of has baggage today, even though I am one of them. It's kind of strange. But this Hebrew word, really, it's difficult to translate in English. This is true if you follow languages going from one language to another. It's, it's hard to do this. And what I want to suggest to you is another frame Rather than this preacher image we all have, whatever that is, good, bad, or ugly, or in between, hope it's not too bad, is this Hebrew idea that sets the frame, how he presents himself, is really a public speaker. In fact, the idea we have just, many of us have visited or attended graduation ceremonies, commencement ceremonies. And the picture we are given, the one I want to place in your mind's eye, is of a commencement speaker who is speaking to a group of young folks or younger generations, dispensing to them the wisdom he has gained. Because this book will have an inordinate emphasis on youth. If you're young here this morning, 
If you're a student, a college student, this book has a commencement feel. But if you're older, it also speaks to you. So I want us to think of this word preacher as a commencement address, a public lecture. Now, you also notice he identifies himself as the son of David. There's a long line of tradition that says that Solomon, King David's son, who comes on the throne, is the writer. And I, I share that tradition, that view. And I think this is very important. Because what we know from Old Testament history, whether you've read the Bible much or not, you know that King Solomon was a guy that had it all in his time. Amazing. He had the intellect of an Albert Einstein. He was very bright. He was a walking brain, like that. He also had the unimaginable wealth of Warren Buffett, the Omaha Oracle. He also had the notoriety and fame and the innovative success in his day with technological savvy of a Stephen Jobs. And he had rock star status of a Justin Bieber or a Bono. That's who this writer is. He lived a charmed life. I mean, the world was at his fingertips. And what he tells us is, though the world was within his reach, nothing was in his grasp. So what we see as we enter into this text is right away in verse 2. It's an interesting way he begins a speech or a writing. He says, verse 2, he says, vanity of vanities. In other words, he wants us to feel the crushing emptiness of a charmed life. He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, again, this English word is not the best word. Uh, some of us who maybe have some boomer memories, we think of Carly Simon, you're so vain, right? Vanity, someone who's into their appearance or whatever, but that's not at all what this word means. We struggle translating it again from the Hebrew language in which this was originally written, and I think Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase, the message does it best. Eugene Peterson says this as he translates this and puts it in a paraphrase. You notice five times this word appears. Solomon will repeat it 47 times, or 37 times, I'm sorry, in 12 chapters. Eugene Peterson says this as he paraphrases verse 2. Smoke. Nothing but smoke. It's all smoke. Now, one of my childhood memories, I have several of them. One of them that is just woven into the fabric of my soul, and it's like it was yesterday when I was just a little young tyke, is going to my second cousin Johnny's house. I don't remember much about Johnny. I was pretty young. But Johnny was a chain smoker. Marlboro's with no filter. You got it? And as a little kid, I thought it was so cool. We'd go to his house and Johnny had perfected his art of smoke rings. He'd, he'd draw in that cigarette deeply, you know, and I was like, so the I was like, wow. Hold it, and then he'd present to all of us who are held in rapt attention his craft. 
Little smoke rings would come out, squarey things, circles, all kinds of little dancey things, and I would grab for them. So they kind of came my way, and I'd grab for them, and what would happen? They'd go, Toof. And I remember sort of being disappointed at Johnny and his smoke rings. I just thought they set me up. But I didn't realize at the time, and I learned later, Johnny, who was a chain smoker, died of lung cancer very early. And my parents reminded me, as much as they loved Johnny, that his smoke rings were not just an artistic craft. They were a picture of his philosophy of life, a life without God. For Johnny, it was all smoke, nothing but smoke rings. This is where Solomon invites us to in the opening banter of his address. He says, it's all smoke. And the question he wants us to wrestle with, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whether we are a skeptic, whether we are a committed believer in Jesus, wherever we are in this faith journey, he wants us to wrestle with this question, what if nothing really matters? So in chapter 1 and 2, we encounter Solomon trying to answer this question. And he does it in this amazing quest. He goes for it in life. It's so cool. He goes for all the gusto he can get. And what we find is, woven through this brilliant literature, is that Solomon finds himself between the proverbial rock and the hard place. He encounters a haunting emptiness and an insatiable hunger for more. And he's caught right there. He tries several quests. He first tries intellectualism, or remember, he was a walking brain. He crams his brain full of all the brain stuff you can cram. And uh, if you remember the story of Solomon in 1 Kings 4, God actually gave him an extra supernatural brain. I mean, he gave him extra brain. So this guy was a brain on a stick, big-time brain. I don't want you to miss that. I mean, he had thoughts that you and I probably have never even thought about. He's scary smart. That's the idea. And he says to us in verse 17 that intellectualism leaves him empty. It's like striving after wind, like smoke rings. And right away, we encounter, and you're going to encounter this through Ecclesiastes, which I want you to read. You're going to encounter it in the Bible. It's a literary tool called paradox. Paradox brilliant Jesus used to teach. Paradox means you take two opposing, seemingly opposing ideas or contradictory ideas, you put them together, and when you look at them, they actually make sense. First glance, they don't. And they open the window to the truths of the universe. So we begin to encounter paradox in Solomon's quest. First one is the intellectual paradox. That is, the more you know, the less you know. The more his brain is crammed full of stuff, the more empty his heart is. And he says, it's smoke, nothing but smoke. So in chapter 2, then, he goes on not to say, hey, if my mind isn't it, if I can't find satisfaction, fulfillment, and thinking the deepest thoughts and stimulate my mind, okay, I'm going to do my bod thing. I mean, if my mind didn't get me, now my bod's going to help me find satisfaction and meaning. So he goes for it. The picture of the text is, in verse, or chapter 2, 
Verse 1, if it felt good, I did it. Some of us, again, who love the Rolling Stones or grew up, I remember hearing Mick Jagger. I mean, as a kid, my older brother played, he loved the Rolling Stones. Let's spend the night together. I don't know how many times I heard that song. I can't get no satisfaction. Remember that one, if you followed it? And Mick Jagger's philosophy was like Solomon. He's tried everything. You know that if you know his story. Yet you hear the haunting emptiness and insatiable hunger of Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, I try, I try. And Solomon, again, in his quest is younger. We don't know exactly how young. And when we're younger, there's always this sense that, hey, I'm just young if I just had this. You know, as I look at my life with all the opportunities, if I could just have a, you know, get wealthy, be famous, right? Do great things, find the right person. You know, marry the most hunk guy or beautiful girl, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to find it. But what happens is Solomon lives a little bit of life and he turns the corner as youth fades him and he says, more wasn't better after all, it was more empty. So Solomon has tried intellectualism, you know, trying to get, be really smart. He tries everything to feel good, every kind of pleasure, with reckless abandonment. That's the text. So, so that doesn't work, so I'm going to try being successful, materialist success. I'm going to try to leave my mark and, like Donald Trump, be this amazing real estate magnet or Stephen Jobs. And if you read the text in Ecclesiastes, you know he doesn't. I mean, Solomon has his name on every building in Jerusalem. And let me tell you, in this world, when you get your name on a building... You've made it in life. A friend of mine said, I'm not worried about getting a name in the build, my building. I'm worried about remembering what my name is. <laughs> but this is the picture. Solomon is a guy who had it all. And he encounters not only the intellectual paradox. The more you know, the less you know. The pleasure paradox, the more you feel, the less you feel. He encounters now the materialistic paradox. The more you stuff your life with, the more empty your life is. And you wake up one morning, and all the stuff, all the accomplishments of your dream life, and you look in the mirror and you say, is this all there is? The one who had it all says there's nothing to it at all. And he says, don't expect empty things to fill you up. They will often set you up. Now, as you approach Ecclesiastes, and I want to encourage you to read it. If you haven't been in part of Open Here, jump in. It's very easy to jump in. Go to our website. Read this extraordinary book. Do you know that Thomas Wolfe, fantastic American writer, said this of Ecclesiastes? He said this, quote, Ecclesiastes is the highest flower of poetry, of eloquence and truth. And this is Thomas Wolfe saying. He said, it is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known. So just to whet your appetite, not only in its profound message, but its sparkling literary beauty that knocks you over if you look at it carefully. I want to give you just a couple appetizers to watch, to taste, to feel as you walk through this book in your reading. First of all, you will notice a repetition of the phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. 
It will pop up all the way through the book, and it's very important. In other words, the dark clouds of despair seem to be hanging over Solomon's words, right? And the reason is because he is limiting life in the real world to only that which is under the sun, not who is over the sun or who is the sun, S-O-N, to which Ecclesiastes is pointing. Under the sun, if life is lived under the sun only, it is a blinding life and a suffocating one. This is what he's saying. And notice, secondly, not only under the sun, you'll notice from the beginning, starting in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, all the way to the end, that the shadow of death follows us all the way through. Because the biggest question all of us wrestle with, whether we are younger, whether we are older, is what does death mean? What's after death? Is anything after death? It's life's ultimate question. And notice chapter 2, verse 16. He says, how the wise dies just like the fool. This is early on in the book. But don't miss also, while you have this empty, haunting emptiness, this insatiable hunger, the writer of Ecclesiastes weaves slivers of hope all the way through his literary masterpiece. One writer calls it patches of God light that peek through the low-hanging clouds of despair. And he highlights this. For example, chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, he says, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work or toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? Do you see that? Solomon uses this big question to drive home a big truth. What is that? Without God, life is deeply unsatisfying. And he says, in this sense of extraordinary incredulity and wonder, who can have enjoyment without him? Wow. Solomon is saying that life without God is an unsatisfying life. You know, I think of it like this. How many of you had a really bad cold or bad flu? You know, when I have really a bad cold or a bad flu, you don't want to see me. Maybe you don't want to smell me. I don't know. But you know, when you, have a, when you get really sick, especially a cold, your head's all plugged up, you don't want to go to work. If you have to go to work, people don't want to be near you. If you have to go to school, you don't want to go to school. I mean, you just want to get through the day. You just want to get home in a little fetal position and survive. And if your parents or your spouse says, you've got to eat something, what does it taste like when you're, you have this terrible cold in your head? It's like, yuck. It's like you're just chewing away. You can do, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's nothing. It's nothing. And this is the picture that Solomon gives. That life without God is like having a cold. 
Yes, you know there's some things going on. You can taste some things now and then, but you have no idea of the pleasure that God has for you. Because pleasure is experienced in the one who gives pleasure, in God himself. Satisfaction, joy, is found in him. Life without God is like a life with a cold. And notice Solomon will say that we are hardwired to find our satisfaction and joy in life in God. Notice Ecclesiastes 3.11. If you're following on your Bible, look with me at chapter 3, verse 11. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you see that already in chapter 3? you see the patch of God light? God has put eternity in our hearts. God has created us to live life not under the sun, but in the sun and the one who is above the sun. We were created for another world. I've been reading a wonderful biography. You know, I love biographies. That's just my favorite thing in the world to read. And uh, I've been reading Alistair McGrath, who was a professor at Oxford, his biography of C.S. Lewis. It's just out recently. And if you've been a part of Christ's community, you know that C.S. Lewis often pops up in my messages in my life because I love C.S. Lewis. Alistair McGrath's biography is amazing. And uh, he captures the sense, you know, C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor and Cambridge professor. And for much of his life, he lived the philosophy and life of Woody Allen. That was his life. That was his view of the world. Nothing mattered. No God, nothing. But then, he came to faith, converted to Christianity, and as Alistair McGrath says, this great change in his life was prompted not just by logical argument, but the deepest longings of his heart. These deep longings of another world prompted C.S. Lewis. And this is what he writes. I think this is Lewis at his best. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. I believe Lewis is right. We were made for another world. Ecclesiastes is a signpost to this bigger story. It is a story of a God who created a perfect world, but as Lewis says, it went to smash as sin and rebellion ravaged this planet, every living thing on it. But that's not the end of the story. The story is that God himself who created the world came to this sin-ravaged planet 
Jesus Christ, God's Son, came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine, rose victoriously from the dead, and points us to another world coming in and through him, where the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in. Solomon is not a story, or Ecclesiastes is not a story of meaningless or despair at all. It's one of buoyant hope. And as you read Ecclesiastes, you know it progresses toward the end. And when we hit chapters 11 and 12, we begin to see how God is brought back into the picture. If your Bible scoot up to 11 and 12. Chapter 12, verse 8, Solomon ends as he begins in a brilliant literary structure. He says, Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's all smoke, nothing but smoke. But that's not the end of Ecclesiastes. There's just a little addendum. And it is verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes doesn't end with vanity or smoke. Remember, Solomon begins his address raising the question, what if nothing really matters in the world? But Solomon has something really important up his literary sleeve I don't want you to miss as he ends this book. See, the big question we think in Ecclesiastes is this, what if nothing matters? Is that the question? The really big question he ends us with is what if everything matters? Notice verses 13 and 14, the end of the matter, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is literally, the text says, duty has been, has it been added, just to give it understanding. Literally the whole of man is the literal con, uh, translation. It is the whole of man. It is the essence of meaning. It's the essence of life. To fear God and keep his commandments. Notice, for God will bring every deed into judgment Every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here Solomon raises the question to us as a reader, as a listener, what if everything matters? What if everything really matters in our life? Because a creator God existed all, or created all of humankind and we are accountable to our creator for our life. And one day a holy God will hold each of us accountable for our lives. We live before and only someone, whether we like it or not. We can all keep secrets from others, but not from God. God sees everything, every thought and motivation of our heart. And the question for us is, how should we live then? Let me suggest a couple things to tuck into your heart this morning. First, embrace the good news. Solomon emphasizes that there's no enjoyment ultimately apart from God. And he also emphasized that there will be a final exam one day. Students, you thought you finished school this year, right? You thought, hey, I got through that final exam. I'm all done. Or you graduated from college. I'm all done with exams. But there is a final exam for all of us, whether we're younger or older. It's not when we finish school. It's when we finish life. 
Dads, moms, grandparents, maybe you haven't taken an exam recently, but all of us will one day. The question is, how will we do on the exam? This is Solomon's bottom line in this book. Rabbi Paul, or the Apostle Paul, knew this book well. And he gets to the bottom line in Romans chapter 3, similar to Solomon. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hear me carefully. Paul is saying, in our own merits, no matter how wealthy we are, how smart we are, how good we are, or not, we all flunk the final exam. Standing before a holy God who is our judge, we all fall short. That's the truth. But it's not the whole truth. Not the full truth. Not the good news. There is good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to earth on this rescue mission. He delivered us not only from a meaningless existence, but from our sinfulness. And Jesus lived a sinless life. He laid his life down on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. In doing so, he satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God towards sin. Your sin and my sin. See, Jesus passed the exam for us with a perfect score. And he offers to each one of us as a gift of his grace his perfect score. Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. But notice the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible is clear from beginning to end. The judgment is coming for each one of us. The New Testament book of Hebrews says it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. That's true whether we are younger or older. And whether we are younger or older this morning, not one of us knows the day when we will die and enter eternity. I remember years ago people raising this question. I don't ever hear it anymore. But it's an important question, not just for a preacher. It's important for everybody. The question is, are you ready to meet your maker? This is where Solomon takes us. Eternity beckons all of us. Heaven or hell is one day closer than it was yesterday for everyone in this room. Jesus said each one of us needs a spiritual new birth, a new creation. And he offers us a grace gift that we receive in repentance and faith. That's amazing good news. Solomon ends his book reminding us to live life with the end in mind. He says, live wisely and do it before an audience of one because you will give an account to him one day. Phil Reich and a friend of mine who's also the president of Wheaton College says it really well. He says, at the final judgment, it will matter how we used our time, whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what our eyes saw, our hands touched, our mouths spoke. Whether we obeyed our father and mother will matter. The household task and the homework assignment will matter. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it 
will all have eternal significance. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes points to the one, the son, who gives us good news. Do you know Christ? Have you embraced him as your Lord and Savior? Are you ready to meet your maker? But not only is there a sober message in Ecclesiastes, there's also one of great enjoyment. Not only embrace the gospel, but the writer of Ecclesiastes says, enjoy life. Wisely enjoy life. I love how St. Augustine puts it. Love God and then do what you please. What does he mean? Well, several things. A Godward life is a glorious one. So how do we live wisely and enjoy life? First of all, lean into God's design and live in it. You'll notice in chapter 11 and 12, especially again if you're younger here today, this text takes us to when we are young. Chapter 11, verse 9, it says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Like, wow, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Go for it. That's the idea. But notice it says, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, if you're younger today, there are so many opportunities before you. It's wonderful to be young with all the possibilities. And Solomon is basically saying, go for it. But remember, God is in the picture, and keep God in the picture. Don't ignore God's design boundaries when it comes to sexuality. He has a plan for that and a design for that. Money, justice, mercy, caring for others, honesty, integrity. And watch out for shortcuts. And watch out for dead-end streets. And if you're older here this morning, Ecclesiastes doesn't let you off the hook either. It's never too late to make some big course corrections in your life if you're older. And some of you are squandering your life in your golden years. Some of you are paralyzed by fear and regret, and God wants you to keep growing and make a difference in the world. Don't forget that the stewardship of your life when you're young is when you're old is important all the way across. Work hard, Ecclesiastes says, and play hard too. As you read this book, notice the emphasis and importance of work. We were created to work, to work hard, to enjoy life and to play. Ecclesiastes has this playful element to it, and I want you to see it. Enjoy what God has given you, the gifts of people and friends and food. and Enjoy, enjoy it as gifts from God. Last night we had, uh, we're part, our families are part of a wonderful wedding. And I had the privilege of fishing the ceremony, and uh, it's my daughter's childhood friend, just a dear, dear young lady who got married. And, and if you were a part of this wedding, there was not only joined the wedding, but the, re- the reception after it was so fun at the Madrid Theater. It was just hours of joy, laughter, dancing, food, celebration. And I found myself hearing C.S. Lewis's voice. I found myself smelling the scent of a flower I have not yet found. I found myself 
hearing the echo of a tune I have not yet heard. And I found myself listening to the news of a country I have not yet visited. This is the life God has for us in this already not yet moment until Christ comes and returns returns and ushers in the new heaven and new earth. We live in a parenthesis. The question of the meaning of life takes us to an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Inevitably, Ecclesiastes points us there where death does not have the last word. Paul gets to the bottom line, too, there, along with Solomon. When he says to the Corinthians, if Christ was not raised, then our Christianity is vanity. It is smoke, nothing but smoke. But he concludes this. He banks his life on it text says, yes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not that nothing matters. It's that everything matters. The meaning of life is not seen through the futility of smoke rings that go poof. The meaning of life is found at the door of an empty tomb where buoyant hope, extraordinary pleasure, and meaning overwhelm us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak into each one of our hearts and minds this morning, wherever we are in our spiritual life. Whether we have a posture of skepticism, deep skepticism, whether we're coasting through life, whether we're younger or older, take the words of Ecclesiastes and impress them on our heart and mind and take us to the empty tomb and the glorious good news of the gospel. May we not leave here today, any of us, not having settled that we are ready to meet our maker. In Jesus' name.